protecting the 0.1% and religious minorities and doing a lot of it online. Welcome to another episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month, we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I am your host, Brendan Howard, and today we are global with our topics. First, we'll talk to Fred Burton, a former police officer and special agent and a New York Times bestselling author. Fred pulls back the curtain on the very exclusive family offices, a model for VIP protection that includes both wealth management and protective intelligence. Next, we call into Argentina to talk to a CPP who has been involved in securing synagogues and protecting Jews in the country after a horrific attack on the Jewish community left more than 80 dead decades ago. And finally, we check in with a director of investigations who has spent many years interviewing people for lots of reasons and does almost all his face-to-face interviews these days online. And first, Fred Burton, Executive Director of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. He's written about his experience hunting and catching the perpetrator of the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. And he talks to us about the wide-ranging and very exclusive work of the so-called family office in security. Well, family offices are really kind of a unique phenomenon. I've done a lot of work around them over the course of my career. And in essence, if you look at some of the Forbes, let's say, top 20 on the list, the majority of them have their own private kind of investment firm. It would be a standalone office that's a little bit distanced from whatever they have done and have created this for the purposes of either wealth management or to facilitate uh, the distribution of funds to organizations that they're very interested in in helping whether it be in the NGO front uh, or whatever causes they want to support uh, and so forth. And uh, the interesting part, just from a corporate security perspective, is they are distant from usually what is a publicly held company. So this would be a private entity uh, that would be standalone, but obviously because of the nature of the personality of, or the person that has built that kind of enterprise or business, uh, there's, there's a close working relationship But there's usually a line in the sand before everything like funding and taxes and everything else that falls into place. Is there a primary reason that, again, those that top 20, the these top people want that outside entity handling this stuff? It seemed a lot of the wealthy and powerful seem like they set up their own foundations to manage everything for themselves. Why do some of them choose to have this family office slightly outside? It's a great question. Uh, I look at it. It's been my experience that predominantly it's done for special purposes, like they're interested in whatever that topic might be that they want to facilitate with or they're interested in setting up, let's say, for example, uh, their own money uh, hedge fund management kind of process. Uh, Also, you have to look at it on a practical sense. If you look at all the people that are on Forbes and and the Rob Report and in the Wall Street Journal every day, I mean, you can imagine the kind of inbound requests that they receive from just people either trying to solicit money or looking for donations you know, and some of them are very worthy causes and others may not be. So it's also a way to manage that kind of inbound uh, that you might receive 
uh, in this kind of space. And that's where, again, uh, the concept of protective intelligence and corporate security rolls in uh, into the protection of family offices and how it's almost a hand-in-glove at times relationship, uh, and others can be quite intertwined, and others are a little bit standoffish and so forth, and they really separate the two. In the article you've recently done, uh, you kind of identify these three things that you think all security professionals could learn from the family office, and maybe I hope we could go through the three. Your first thing you identified from family offices is sort of something that you said they excel at, which is sort of unobtrusive protection. When you mentioned that, I thought that was interesting because I think a lot of security sometimes is set up to be in some way public facing as a deterrent and unobtrusive protection reminds you don't know it's there. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that balance between uh, deterring people from the problem and keeping that stuff on the down low. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And it's something uh, like when I have in the past sat down with ultra high net worth individuals you know, look, at times, the very, um, the, the obvious overwhelming perception of security is what people see on TV with sunglasses and earpieces and armored limousines and so forth. In the, in the business world, at times, that's bad for business. That's a bad look. That's a bad optic. That's that perception of, you know, look, I want to go in and visit a client or I want to just uh, engage with the staff that I work with. And, you know, in, in many ways, these individuals that work inside these companies that have built these empires, uh, you know, they're, they're really on a pedestal and they're very, very much looked up to. And with that can cause a lot of issues. So when you start looking at unobtrusive kind of security and the protection of a family office, it's one that's predicated upon discretion. It's one that's, that's predicated upon observation. Uh, It's one that's really driven by the protective intelligence model, which is something that I took from the public sector into the private sector in late 98 and 99, and and others have said that I was the first to do that. And with that, I knew knew that the protective intelligence model would work, and it's uniquely suited in the family office space because – that's where you tend to have a standalone kind of entity, whether that be a building uh, or an office in a high rise. Uh, and how you go about protecting that is one that's not in your face. It doesn't center necessarily around guns, gates, and guards. It centers heavily on uh, the integration of technology uh, that you can also merge with corporate if you like. Uh, it centers on the management of persons of interest that may cross across both thresholds. Let's say, for example, you have an individual that uh, is fixated on your ultra high net worth person. That's also a location where that fixated person could go to and literally show up and want to meet or see that individual. So uh, there's a fine line between uh, one of just diplomacy and handling that with the soft skills and the ability to have enough safeguards in place at your location uh, to keep that kind of person away or at least at a distance. Um, coming from the public sector to the private sector, so protecting v- VIPs in uh 
public service and then moving to private, it's natural. Your second point, you talk about kind of protecting the periphery or helping the periphery. So not just the VIP themselves, but family, employees. Could you give an example of that kind of protection that you think might be applicable? We think about, hey, automatically the Secret Service protects the VIP and the VIP's family in many cases, but that doesn't always happen in a corporate situation. How much do you think uh, corporate security professionals need to think about the periphery, not the employee, but employee's family and things like that? Yeah, it's a great question. In essence, if you visualize an umbrella and who's going to be underneath that umbrella from a practical sense, in many ways that's driven by uh, the ultra high net worth person or the CEO that has established a family office and says, look, uh, I want my significant other, uh, I want my children, I want my parents underneath that umbrella or on that periphery. So it's up to that security officer or that protective intelligence analyst to be out there looking for threat indications affecting those personalities. So for example, most of us that go to a workplace every day should understand that the company is looking out for the interests of that staff. So if you think about it from a modeling perspective, you would push it out to that family of that employee that's also there. And how are you going to go about keeping track of them? How are you going to go about making sure that they're not going to dangerous places uh, or going on spring break in volatile areas in Mexico, let's say for an example, uh, or going on safaris or remote locations. So many of the principles apply, but it's just can be different because of the nature of the expansion of the periphery that that ultra high net worth person may bring into that fold and wants you to do something about. In the other realms without VIPs, we were talking about a large pool of employees. Does it become less physical protection and more sort of proper security hygiene for that employee and their family? Not to whatever, to watch out for scams, to watch out for this, to watch out for that. So just disseminating information to them? Yeah, and that's a great question when you start looking at just the threat dissemination. In some cases, what happens in the it's kind of like the uh, the motto, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? The family office wants the privacy of that office, the privacy of the things they're doing, whether it be real estate purchases, vehicle purchases, aircraft purchases, whatever, to stay there. And they don't want that shared with corporate. Having said that, that person is so closely linked to corporate, it becomes a real challenge at times for that corporate security officer to know that balance and to be careful as to what information is flowing in which direction. So it's not unusual for that family office to be the inbound collection pool of all threats that are coming across the transom, but the push out, the dissemination back may be very limited in scope or protected or siloed in that vein. And most of the family offices that I've worked with over the years have that kind of setup. And one of the things that we didn't touch on early on was a lot of the family offices are set up for entities too to house whatever else that they've got under their air quote empire, whether that be uh, additional real estates, vacation homes, vehicles, cars, whatever that might be, to include you know secondary kind of investments. 
your third point, so now thinking about all that stuff that falls under the umbrella, you talk about family offices as being, you've seen them as particularly good at identifying and then using new technology. And maybe by comparing family offices to other corporate security, you've thought, hey, corporations sometimes look at every new security option in technology as it's another cost, it's another cost. So hesitation, we need the board to look at it. We need to look, let's compare it to the budget and maybe a family office moves quicker. Is there anything, somebody who's kind of wedged into that situation where it's harder to get decisions made faster? Do you have any advice for how to get people to bite on new technology when it's available? It's been my experience that uh, technology really helps in this vein, meaning that if you look at this in concept, that technology really can be leveraged across not only the family office, but corporate. But in many ways, family offices have their own budgets. They're nimble. They might have an executive director. Uh, that discussion can be very uh, quick as to uh, this is the kind of program that we suggest for you from your physical security to your technology programs. This is the umbrella coverage here. And you can very quickly get that kind of decision made in the family office space versus what might take place in the corporate realm where you have to go through procurement and then you have to go through legal and you, there's all kinds of oversights and to include how you get paid. And that can be a long way down the road or that decision matrix may take months in some cases. Uh, so in the family office space, uh, typically, what it's been my experience is they're just able to move faster and quicker, and they always are looking at better ways to leverage technology to help protect the periphery, but also to be cost effective. Want to learn more about family offices? Burton told me he's written a lot about them at ontic.co. Now, from the exclusive VIP, to a vulnerable population. We talk now with Alejandro Lieberman, CPP, who is the former head of the Jewish security office in Argentina. He came up in the security world years after a terrible bombing in a traditionally Jewish neighborhood in Buenos Aires. But he says that one attack still informs not just the past, but the future of the fight against anti-Semitism, both in government efforts and nonprofit security. The, the main thing to mention about Argentina is that in 1994, we had a very significant terrorist attack on a Jewish community center. It was not strictly a synagogue, but it was the main building of the community. And we had 84 people killed and more than 300 people injured. So after that, the whole Jewish community security change forever. And after that, we started protecting synagogues and schools and, and sports centers from the Jewish community. Actually, we created a whole office to centralize and direct community security. That created a whole structure of professional personnel protecting institutions, but also a volunteer organization because some institutions didn't, did not have money or the inclination to have permanent professional security. So that is the main issue in Jewish community security in Argentina. Along with that is that being one of the largest Jewish communities in the world, we cannot protect every single 
installation. So it also requires a lot of cooperation with the local authorities to have police in place or to help us react when something happens and, and be uh, uh, an official uh, help to produce this. And also in some events, let's say uh, crowded places, you know, like an event in the street or uh, an important recital or an event offsite, then we have a, a lot of cooperations of cooperation with police, intelligence, and all other actors to try and create a, a safe place. That would be like that, like the context of Jewish security in places of worship. Now, in Argentina, the Jewish community is one of the, of the largest in the world, but it's very minor in the population is less than a half point percent of the population of the country. So largely, we don't see in Argentina attacks on churches, churches or mosques, and we do have a lot of attacks in, in Jewish community. Sometimes it's, let's say, just defacing or insults, and sometimes it's something uh, more, more significant. Um, today in Argentina, what do Jews worry about at their synagogues? You mentioned defacing. And so I wonder how much of the worry is graffiti and feeling uncomfortable and sort of property attack? And how much are people, again, really worried about people being harmed? So how much is it property and how much is it people and what people are most worried about? Uh, I would say that the worry or, or the main uh, preoccupation, it's people being harmed. And those kind, uh, those kind of events are the most, um, the ones that generate more preoccupation and more aftermath, you know, like people talking about it, people worried about it, uh, people talking to its kids on how to behave. And when the, the cases are of defacing or property damage, okay, it goes away faster. There are more incidents of defacing and, and property damage, but the events of people being harmed or threatened are more, they affect the community more. I mean, the, 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 the sense of community. With that 1994 attack, obviously people are always kind of caught off guard by a, a large attack like that. And then they react, they're reactive to it. Um, and I bet what happened between 1994 and now is maybe as the danger felt like it was less, there's a little every year, maybe there's a little fewer resources and a little less money that goes into this stuff. So in your position today in 2023, where you're trying to think about the security at synagogues, how do you plan for it? How much are you able to staff up physically? How much are you able to harden sites so that they're safer? And how much do you spend time maybe gathering with cybersecurity and with information, gathering information online or through networks of information. So how much is it physical and how much is it information that you focus on these days? Well, that, that's a very good uh, approach and a great question. I would say that from 1994 to up to now, we had a, like a, a normal distribution curve, the, the form of a bell. First times were all hardening. We created a um, stand of distance with the physical means. We created and installed different doors. We we worked on the on the glazing of, of the of the hardening of glazed uh, uh, surfaces 
it was the, the first impact was to harden the sites. Then the second one was human resources. We created a whole structure of people, of professional volunteers, a lot, a lot of training, armed and non-armed guards, depending on the on the inclination of the institution and the risk. They're creating the office to centralize information and, and distribute information for actionable intelligence of the, the threats and the and the movement of or significant events and all that as you well said, started to fade. Also, in the middle of that, the technology appeared as a more accessible and, and generalized means. So in the middle of that, after the 2000s, a huge intake of technology for from alarms to uh, closed-circuit television and sensors and all that started to, to kick in. And... In the last few years, yes, the fade out of resources, the fade out of um, support, and the change of the of the threat environment. Imagine that after 1994, soon after we had 2001, in the 9/11 attacks, also were uh, a big call of attention for all the the potential the, the potential terrorist threat all over the world spiked the, the, the attention in Argentina too. And then all of the events of terrorist attacks in, in Israel sort of echo in, in all, the, all the diaspora, all the, the, the Jewish communities around the world. In Argentina, we saw that. And we, we, when we have intifadas, or, or spikes in the terrorist attacks in Israel, we also see some uh, heightened interest to, to protect in the country. Right now, apart from the spikes in violence in, in Israel, we do not have much other events that call off attention in Argentina. So uh, there is trouble to, to gather not only money, but also personnel. For a long time, we protected the institutions with Jewish personnel as professional protectors. And now that is very difficult for us to get with the new generations, the guys, the kids, uh, 18, 19, 20, 20, let's say the, the, the Z generation does not want to be uh, working physically and protecting the institutions. So it's very hard to get uh, re human resources. And finally, the cyber uh, threat. Uh, it's being more of a, we tend to use the, the internet and the cyber realm as a information gathering and also an information monitoring of the threat, but we don't suffer as much, uh, let's say, defacing or ransomware uh, in, the, in the digital realm in Argentina. We see that in other places, it's something that happens, like hijacking some website or some uh, social network of an institution or a, pers a Jewish personality to send an anti-Semitic message. But we don't see that much in Argentina. Is there something in either the way the technology is changing or um, the physical protections, physical security is changing, or the information gathering is changing that makes you hopeful? So are there some things on the horizon that you're excited about? Or do you feel like, 
uh, we kind of have a lot of the same tools we've had for the past 10 years, and, and that's what we work with. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, what, what I can see is that uh, because of the restrictions or the, or the limitations that we see in the way we used to produce security, we are coming back to the hardening and the, depending on hardening the sites, like doing less of a human prevention on the field and try and do more restrictive protection of the sites. And I feel and I see in most cases that we are doing slowly but continually a great job at uh, threat hunting on the web. Maybe we lack some skills to do proper dark and deep web use, you know, but we are getting better at getting information on the uh, online that it was very difficult in the past to get from, from other sources and now would be almost impossible to gather from, from human intelligence. And finally, I'm wondering with a lot of security professionals who go into the uh, private sector, not maybe what you'd think about as the nonprofit sector, like houses of worship and, and nonprofits, a lot of times they will work for companies in, in the private sector. Is there anything they don't get about uh, security when it comes to houses of worship? Like if somebody came from corporate and went to protect a synagogue, is there something particularly different about these buildings and protecting them, different about the events that happen there that feels different than other places? Or does the same event protection and the same building protection principles, are they exactly the same across the board? I would say that the most difficult to, to communicate to people that come from the, the private sector and even from the public sector, from, from security forces, okay? You have two main differences. One, for the people coming from the security forces, like the public sector, you don't have police power. You cannot take people away and you might have conversations, but you cannot interrogate them. And also it's very difficult in some cases to simply reject them from coming in. And that has to do with the other side from the a particular thing that differs from the private sector. We want and we need the houses of worship to keep being some place that it's inviting, that it's comforting, that it's welcoming to the people coming in. One of the ways that we try and, and, and protect ourselves is to keep the doors shut, but they can be open. And it is very good that you know all the people in the congregation, but you also need to be ready to be welcoming to a person that is not part of the congregation and wants to join. Because in the end, we want the people from the community to, to feel welcome and to, to be uh, ready to approach us and go back to the community. Sometimes there's people that just feel Jewish and do not have enough uh, contact or lost contact for a while and want to go back to, to feeling in community. And we need to be open to that. And it's very difficult to protect and be completely open and welcoming to these people we don't know. But that's, that's the way that it is. 
Lieberman's dilemma is probably the dilemma of thousands of you in security, keeping some buildings welcoming to friendly visitors while still protecting against unfriendly dangers. And speaking of danger, it has sometimes been the job of Scott Walker, PCI, to ferret out potential threats through background checks with the Coast Guard and investigations after an incident in the private sector. And that work is helped when people are more available to talk online on Zoom or other teleconference platforms. But not sitting with a person in person can complicate the work of gathering information, whether for a potential new hire or after a workplace incident. But as Scott tells us, that's just how it is these days. What are the kinds of interviews that force you to have an online interaction instead of sitting down in a room with someone during your investigation? Almost all of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. The shift, I was kind of calling that that we would be more remote and, and that uh, more virtual investigations would be taking place. I just figured it would be happening in the mid-2020s. Uh, COVID really sped that up. And people okay. now are so comfortable doing distance that they almost don't want to meet you to come do interviews um, in person. And so I, th I think there's a lot of companies that are like, well, I'm not going to fly you uh, halfway around the world to go do an investigation unless you're you're there and you can actually go do a door knock and meet with somebody. Um, people are much more comfortable and reliant on uh, either being on the phone or being like we are in this kind of the visual medium of the, some people call Zoom or Teams or whatever. And so... I, I don't know that that's really going to change. Of course, there are certain things that that you people will find difficult to do remotely. And one of them, and I, I've used this this example a number of times, but accident or incident investigations, you know, while I support a lot of that, those kinds of investigations, we you really do need somebody to actually physically be there to go look at this at a scene or go look at, you know, what happened. Somebody fell off a ladder and and didn't make it. And so, you know, what does that look like? What does the, the, the location look like? What are the safety protocols? But as far as the interview itself, people are still comfortable. Even I've been in the same city with somebody and, you know, can't get our, our, our meetup times to work out. And so it's just like, right. Hey, let's do a phone call. Let's knock this out. And it's, I just think that this is going to be the way people will, will be comfortable in confrontational type thing settings, you know, it's not going to work hundred percent of the time. And, and, but I think we as investigators need to be prepared to meet people. What I always say, you got to meet, meet people where they are, you know, are they traveling? Are they, are they physically there? Do they, are they of an older generation and they want to meet you in person? So where do you do that? You know, and, and in some of the organizations that I've worked with, you can't always meet in, in this physical location because there's no office there, but I need to be there to go talk with somebody. So how do I do that? You know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of coffee shop meetups that, that we, we shouldn't have sensitive conversations at, but there's no place else to go. Right. So it gets difficult that way. You mentioned confrontational. I can see a spectrum of conversations and conversations running from when I talked to a woman who interviewed you for a magazine article recently yeah. um, for security management. She mentioned kind of this amiability and seriousness. How do you balance that in this yeah. online conversation? When you are in person, there are a lot of techniques that get used during conversations and interviews 
to pull people, to make somebody a little more nervous, to make someone a little more calm? How are you doing this online when people oftentimes are probably sitting in a comfortable room? They're either in their comfortable office or they're certainly away from you. So I feel like if you want to put the pressure on and make this more serious, it doesn't feel like a serious place. You're just sitting in your normal office or you're sitting in your normal living room or or home office. How do you how do you do that? How do you kind of pull those levers during an online conversation. It goes back to make sure we understand the difference between an interview and an interrogation. And I'll go all the way okay. back to, to uh, you know, what I first learned, the read technique, you know, and everybody loves that to talk about read technique. And it's really just what is a, an interview is not supposed to be pressure at all. And then you can shift, by the way, during an interview into an interrogation. When you're in person, it is almost a physical change in the room of you make you shift the way you shift your body. Maybe you are taking notes and you put something down and then it's like, it's me and you, we need to talk about this. We need to figure out what's going on. There's a barrier, right? And so when you're shifting into that interrogation mode, it's really difficult to do that remotely and, and almost maybe inappropriate to do an interrogation remote. Because it is an emotional thing. You're, you're trying to capture momentum and, and get them over something, some type of barrier. And what I have found, and this is everything we're talking about with remote interviews or remote investigations, really works well for the private sector that does not work at all for, for law enforcement. And so, you know, where do we get a lot of our experience in interviews is from law enforcement. But I can tell you, I've interviewed people over a satellite phone. So, you know, it's not <laughs> as a as a government agent, you know, it's not uh, it's not something that that uh, you want to do. But, hey, your folks are in the middle of nowhere. You got to find out what happened. And maybe that it's going to be an uncomfortable interview. But you got to understand that when you're in remote, um, that person can click the hang up button at any moment, at any time. When you're in physical uh, interviews, that's harder to do. It's harder to say, get stand up and leave the room, right? And of course, we don't box them into a corner. We let you know, access to the door, all the things that we're supposed to do as interviewers. But we got to be mindful when we're when we're trying to build that rapport. There's social custom that can keep someone yeah. sitting in a chair in the room that is not present when you're on the phone that's or it. on this teleconference. You've got to be really. And I, I I'll take my preparation back to before I even talk to somebody, once I find their name or figure out who they are, I start doing my due diligence. You know, uh, go look at the social media, go look at their LinkedIn profile, talk to other people before I am going to be in in an interview that would or could be confrontational. I need to really understand who they are. And if I don't know them, I got to figure out what kind of triggers there might be. Because to your point, you don't want to upset them, right? You I mean, in in private uh, interviews or or corporate interviews, we really have to be mindful of our code of conduct. So if you're doing an investigation for a company, you have code of conduct. And I have to treat everybody the same way um, I expect them to treat me. We're all employees and so on and so forth. You can't violate the code of conduct because you're trying to conduct an interview. Um, I mean, you can, but you shouldn't, <laughs> we should not be, that's the whole reason why we're there. Right. Um, but you know, in, in law enforcement interviews, I can apply a lot of pressure within the law. Right. And so in the private sector, code of conduct is kind of our law. It's the guiding principles in which we do things. 
And so treating people with respect and, and um, not calling them names or something, you know, for example, is really important. Whereas as a law enforcement interviewer, I might want to apply some stimulus somewhere and use a term uh, to, to apply that stimula to get a reaction, you know, to get somebody off their game. You know, if I think they're, they're being resistant to what I'm doing. But ultimately, I interview very similarly in person as I do remotely. You know, I'm honest. I'm upfront. I'm telling you, hey, this and I treat it kind of like a business transaction. So if I've done my due diligence, I know who I'm talking to. And I, by the way, have all the answers to all my questions ahead of time before (laughs) I even ask them. Right. Like a good interviewer should and good investigator should. I know what the answers should be. So if I'm sensing resistance or I'm getting a different response than what I, I think I know the answer is. I need to to figure out why that is. And and you know there's there's they make they write books about these things and there's only so many uh barriers that that could be. You know, somebody wants to hide something, somebody's embarrassed, somebody thinks that they're going to lose their job. And I wish I could go into these interviews and say, you know, if you don't talk to me, uh we are going to take action against your job. I wish I could say that, but I don't. Because that adversarialness going into an interview is horrible. I wouldn't want to be treated like that. And I wouldn't want anybody who I'm talking to, no matter kind of what they did, I still have to build rapport with them. And so if you aren't spending the time building rapport, you're going to have a harder time trying to elicit those responses. It's just compounded when you're remote. So clearly face-to-face interviews, interrogations, been around forever. Then you have the phone. So then you're talking to people on the phone. That's a different set of protocols. And what are the significant differences between sitting in a room and looking at someone on uh, Google Meet or Zoom or Teams and sitting on Google Meet, Zoom or Teams and comparing that to a phone call? So where does that sit in the spectrum of like, how much are you trying to pay attention to body language? How much are you throwing it away? Are there different things you can do on screen when people are in a comfortable environment that you can't do when you're on the phone because you can't see and you can't do because you're not in the room with them? I'll say that uh, my one of my biggest concerns when I'm talking to people on with technology, so if I'm doing a Zoom call or a phone call, my biggest concern is, are they recording what I'm saying? Right, because I'm going to report accurately what, what has occurred, but I'm not because of the way the laws are in many states. I might not be recording this this interview, and um, because getting to a recorded interview that can be another barrier that people are like, oh, I don't want you recording me, and right. right. So we have to be cognizant of that. So I'm always curious: are they recording me? Is there somebody else in the room that's giving them answers? And I've had that that experience where, you know, I'll say, Hey, you know, we need to have this, this kind of confidential interview. I don't have anybody in the room here. The only people that I'm talking to, or I will share the information that you're providing me with is our general counsel and my immediate supervisor, you know, and that's the truth. I'm not going to go tell HR and all these other things. And so that's my biggest concern. Who's in the room and who's recording when I'm not in the room with them. The biggest difference, though, and I I tell this story all the time, and and people who have been investigators, whether you've investigated a suspect or you've interrogated a suspect in person, the biggest difference is, believe it or not, smell. You can smell stress. Maybe people who have played sports have experienced this as well. But when you're in the interview room, it's usually a small windowless room with like really poor ventilation and it gets hot. You are close enough to each other that you can I can actually smell 
when they get, are giving off something that I, I'm, I'm smelling it now as I'm talking about it. It's a weird thing to say, but I can sense when there's stress. And I won't say when somebody's lying because I'll just say stress. When I'm asking stress provoking questions, you know, did you do it type questions? Yeah, I can smell in the room when they're having difficulties. In addition to that, you're seeing head to toe, right? You can see the full body when that's why I, and I can't stand when I see this on TV, but you see interviewers sitting across a table from a, a, a person they're interviewing. I hate that. And when I interview people in person, there's no table in between us. It's just you and me. I'm not even taking notes. I got somebody else to do that or we're recording it. I'm off the top of my head. I know what I need to ask you and I know where we need to, need to go with this interview. And it's really my opportunity to, to hear your side of the story. What I always tell people, two sides of every story, right? Tell me yours and help me understand why you did whatever it is that you're accused of doing. We think you did. And by the way, I'm going to tell you that in the interview before we even start. This is what I'm investigating. And this is what I'm trying to understand. Help me help you, essentially. Right. But there is a real distinct smell. And then it's really hard to tell, especially on, on video nowadays, when somebody is under stress. Now I'm a horrible liar, so I have like a red response if I'm <laughs> if I am under stress or or you know happy or, or uh, you know I'll I'll have a blush response, right? Um, pupil responses, uh, sweating, things like that. You, you can't see that on on camera unless they have a really high resolution camera, which most people don't do. And so that that's and then additionally, when you're you can't even see them and you're just listening to them on the phone. I'm trying to listen for tone and intonation and really try to understand what are they telling me? Because, um, and it's totally not ideal to do a um, accusatory interview. And we don't do many of those, believe it or not, in the private sector. We don't really, once I get enough information, HR is like, okay, that person's terminated. And we generally don't care. Like I, I've got, I've got more than enough information to, to provide whether it's, you know, fraud or theft or, or uh, inappropriate acts, uh, violation of code of conduct, whatever it might be on the private sector side. I'm giving that to HR or I'm giving that to our general counsel. And they're like, good enough for me. They're gone. And we just terminate the relationship, you know, because it, again, it's a business relationship. And so I may not, I generally don't even get an, an opportunity to, to ask them why. <laughs> That's right. Scott just needs the facts. And he can get those over the phone or the internet, and he can get those without heavy eye contact or getting a person in the room. It takes the right prep before an interview and the right attitude during the interview. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, Fred Burton of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence, Alejandro Lieberman, CPP, owner of the security consulting company Glowhair Group, and Scott Walker, PCI, Director of Investigations at the international paper company, Paper Excellence. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. And if you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management. The world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. Find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there.